0: Many of us spend much of our time feeling dull, stultified, numb. Much of what we do is compulsory or routine, and it stems from the things we like least about ourselves. Often, we feel weak. We wait and wait. For the end of our shift, for when we can go to bed and end the day, for the weekend or the vacation, and for the fix from the bottle, the sugar, or the Netflix. The hum of electronics. The drivel of advertisements and news, and sometimes even this tiresome small talk among those we call our friends, coalesce into a drone that, at times, seems to drown out any other possibility. We are told we've arrived, the end of history, the land of the free, the best of all possible worlds. But some of us feel, deeply and undeniably, that a different life is possible. We know this possibility in our flesh we have felt moments of ecstasy, joy, and freedom that are burnt so indelibly into our consciousness as to preclude any doubt. We call these moments, and the people who have felt them, the brilliant, because they are glorious to feel and yet dangerous to know, for they beckon us to a life way of passion that is not easily slaked by a world that rewards torpor. The Brilliant Podcast is an effort to share those moments and to foster them. To tell stories and explore ideas in a way that stokes our passions and reminds us that a world of ecstasy and mystery lies buried, but nonetheless alive, beneath the malaise and drudge that tries daily to convince us that it is all there is, has ever been, or could be.
1: Welcome to episode eight of the Brilliant Podcast. We are, uh, this really is our first episode where we're. we're people have started to listen to the, to the podcast and where you don't exactly feel like we're speaking to the void, there's still a pretty big time delay. but um, uh, So, for instance, this week we're going to talk some more about some listener feedback, but we haven't actually heard the response that I'm sure we'll get from the listener feedback that we responded to last week.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's a bit of dislodging. So
1: the topic for this week is indigeneity. We're going to talk about a couple news stories that were uh, chosen by Bellamy, and so I will be staggering around sort of at a loss for what to say. And uh, then we'll talk about indigeneity, which I guess (laughs) I uh, have a lot to say. Um, I feel like
0: there was was some positioning of responsibility there.
1: Yes, if the first half (laughs) of this podcast sucks, the responsibility is Bellamy's. Right. Aragorn is innocent. (sighs) always. (laughs) Not something you hear uh, said very often. (laughs) So anyway, so I guess we're going to begin with uh, listener feedback.
0: So infamous anarchist news personality, Emile. Responded to our, our first episode with some praise and some comments. And I am maybe in the minority of people that very much appreciates the things that Emil has to say on A News. And probably because Emil is, in my experience, at least with people I've met, part of the tiny minority of people that understand Stirner and Nietzsche the way that I do, um, understand them as, yeah, this is, I'm excited understand them as epistemological nihilists, identity eliminativists, and people basically who start their philosophy with basing everything on raw experience and what we might call phenomenality and they go from there. So rather than having these presuppositions about how the world is or what the good is or what uh, the essential nature of human beings is, you set your affair upon nothing, as Stirner began his book, and then build up values yourself. You don't regard yourself as an independent subject in a world of objects, so in a lot of ways these sort of non-Western, Western Western philosophers. And I especially appreciated Emile's Nietzsche quote, when I actually had no idea where this comes from, and he didn't say where it came from, Um, but Nietzsche's saying, quote, a spirit thus emancipated, as in having that, that kind of orientation that I just described, stands in the midst of the universe with a joyful and trusting fatalism in the faith that only what is separate and individual may be rejected, that in the totality everything is redeemed and affirmed. He no longer denies. And you said to me last week when we were having a conversation about how I do have this unconventional interpretation of these thinkers that the importance is where you put the emphasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I see almost no one placing the emphasis on, on those thinkers in that way. It's very different from certainly most understandings of Nietzsche, even among anarchists, and definitely different from the understanding of Nietzsche that, uh, for instance, Wolfie Landstreicher has with this sort of he interprets amor fati as faith as a, or fate as a worthy adversary. And I, I just don't see that anywhere. And um, it seems totally at odds with most of what Nietzsche says. But uh, I, I dwell on this mainly because uh, I'm looking forward to an episode in the future where we talk about what anarchist epistemology might be so an anarchist understanding of what knowledge there is where knowledge comes from what we have good reason to think and so that's to me exciting because it's not just an understanding of what kind of human relations do we want or what is a good life but rather an understanding an anarchist understanding excuse me of what reality is or where what first principles of knowledge might be and i would like to get into that another day
1: well, I uh, was sort of looking forward to you um, uh, explaining to me or deciphering Emil's questions. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, wh- what do you see his question to you being? And then he sort of yeah, sta- I mean, sta- he sort of states wh- what I am. and I would like uh, to to decipher that also. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that, that was what I was trying to get at a bit where he was saying, I, I, he said something like hope to see more from Bellamy on this relational worldview. I think he said, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm basically saying it. Yeah. That is something that's, that I really would like to flesh out in a future episode. I, I don't know that I, I feel like that would have to be an episode unto itself. Um, and so while those are themes that I plan to keep touching on, uh, I think it, it would have to be a, a future week to really get into it. But I was actually curious that he, he had this um, statement about you that you were alluding to, Aragorn's seemingly literal view of relations in conventional terms of relations among things rather than relations as the basis of things. And I'm wondering if you feel that that's a fair gloss on you or not.
1: Well, well I'd like to begin by def- defining in English language what that, what that <laughs> means. Mm-hmm. What because it sounds like, you know, you're you're developing all of this along philosophical lines. You're talking sure. about building an ep- epistemological framework, right? Where you begin with uh, uh, relations as the basis of things.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would even <clears throat> take it back further and just say beginning from raw experience that you're not putting a conceptual framework open over and saying I'm an object and or I'm a subject, really. That's somehow this free-willed thing among a world of largely consisting of passive objects. And so I think what, what Emile's trying to say is that y- there's a way of starting with objects first, presupposing them, and then going from there where you have this these more or less fixed things that maybe act or don't act. And then you, the, the sort of liberal individual, are this thing that is rational, that is free-willed, that gazes at the world that is separate from it and then figures out how it can interface with it, treating various things as resources or otherwise useful items, and manipulating them and being this kind of thing that stands apart.
1: So that and, uh, from are you trying to define which, what he is saying that I do, which is to well, I don't know if he's saying duties of that. relations among things.
0: I'm 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 not necessarily saying that he's saying that you do that, uh-huh. but rather that that is the Enlightenment view uh-huh. that persists today. Uh-huh. And I mean, if you really want to get take it back, I mean, you could say it's a Christian view or something like that. But I, I think calling it an Enlightenment view is is a more f- fair characterization.
1: Oh, uh, sorry, I, I'm just trying to understand what what he means or what. What your sense of what he means? since he's obviously tossed thousands and tens of thousands of <laughs> words at us. Um, seemingly literal view of relations in conventional terms of relations among things. Uh-huh. So, what do you think he
0: means by that? It's maybe a, a slightly ameliorated version of what I described. Something that s- stresses the relations among things, but still starts with a, a metaphysics of things as separate from each other, and more or less consistent, having a more or less consistent identity through time that changes only when the object is created or destroyed.
1: I mean, the reason it's really important for me to unpack this is because I know that what he's saying, on the one hand, is a sort of furtive attempt at at speaking outside of his own experience and speaking outside of his, his own sort of... You know, like, we know that this guy... Spent his career doing phys- some, some something in the world of physics, uh-huh. and he is now a, a retired person speaking, sort of, about his life in some sort of perspectivist right, right direction. And so, so for me to hear you unpack the philosophical foundations of what it is that he's saying, right, because he's he is trying to diss me in in this in this uh, uh, phrase. Um, <laughs> And, and so understanding, like, where the diss is coming from, which in this case, right, is... is it, it, It's sort of classic in, enlightenment insults, you know, right? Like, like you develop things into reified objects, and then right. you engage with them in, in, in that way. And right. and, and so, um, uh, I mean, the great thing about being so obscure is that I don't need to be in, feel very insulted. I don't think that he was actually necessarily trying
0: to... I don't think he was trying to insult you, but... Okay. I mean you could say there's an implicit this
1: for someone who speaks as much as he does about an indigenous worldview <laughs> and about doer deeds and and, and try to separate, subject object <laughs> and trying to separate yourself from from enlightenment lock-in uh-huh. basically what that is is an enlightenment lock-in smackdown uh-huh.
0: and uh <laughs> why is that so funny <laughs> just enlightenment lock-in smackdown is a phrase that i'm having trouble not enjoying
1: and so uh I couldn't like. The reason I want to understand the whole sort of uh, coded philosophical language here is is so that I can communicate to people who are, you know, who do have an Enlightenment worldview, which is the vast majority of people we engage with, Mm -hmm. and in such a way that I make clear where my distance from, from their perspective is mm-hmm. without relying on their perspective to, to do it.
0: Well, right. I mean, this is kind of what Wittgenstein talks about when he he's talking about the the trap of philosophical discourse and he's saying a, a picture held us captive. We could not get outside of it for the picture itself lay in language and language repeated it to us repeatedly, something like that. And so what 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 I feel like my kind of uh, internal contradiction is that I try to get outside of this worldview by getting so deeply into it right that I I can philosophize myself out of it but of course there's a way in which that's really limited because you still end up using all of, all of this discourse to try to get outside of it and I I don't know that there's there's not an, there's no other way that I've seen for myself to try to do it but it does become sort of tiresome or cumbersome or difficult to talk about it. And really, you're trying to talk about the simplest things, right, of just what it feels like to be in the world. But because that itself lies outside of language, my way to try to approach it is actually just to use a a sort of avalanche of language.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's another um, uh, statement this week about how... um, and it's not in reference to The Brilliant, but in reference to this uh, interview with me that was posted. But uh, at the host, this one? Yeah, but at the mm-hmm. heart of it, it basically says that for me, this is a hobby. And with the implication being that for them, it's about the revolution. For me, it's a hobby.
0: You, you Aragorn. Me, Aragorn, Aragorn yeah. Uh-huh.
1: It's an interview with Aragorn that uh-huh. we're referring to when they, when yeah, they yeah. say, aha, I finally have evidence that for you, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me... It's about nothing it. could be it's
0: more serious.
1: Nothing could be more serious. right? Uh-huh. Like you're playing with Confederate soldiers on a piece of board <laughs> that you pl- place trees upon. But for me... I
0: assume this was an anonymous... <laughs> yeah, sort of, a yeah, big surprise was anonymous. Yeah. But,
1: so... so um, I guess the first thing that is an important thing for me trying to parse through all this is, is to, you know, really keep clear the difference between a person's observation, a person's motivation, and and me, where I fit in. in mm-hmm. that. So so in the case of Emil, like I I believe entirely that Emile's project is um uh wingnut in the best possible way. Yeah. Meaning it's entirely a project that, that he has sort of created and that, and that he more or less doesn't require oxygen or data or information from anybody else to continue <laughs> on so he might use something like our podcast as fuel yeah. to, to to write today's essay uh, to say,
0: see these people get, agree <laughs> right, with me
1: <laughs> right but um but but it it's um whereas this whereas the other feedback the feedback about me personally is much more motivated in this in a in a in a project right like like we're having a political disagreement and the way that they choose to play out that political disagreement is to say that you know I'm a child I'm um, which I actually really love like you know I'm, I'm this um, yeah I'm, I'm this feral child wandering in the in the woods um, you know who wouldn't know a revolution if it slapped him in the face <laughs> whereas they're this you know serious warrior. In other words, uh, uh, theirs is a project that ha- has personal malice, whereas this is, um, uh, you know, again, like, this person who is a very...
0: Wait, I think you should, because you're gesturing, but you're using unreferenced pronouns that might make it hard to... For pe- when you say this and yeah, that. Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah. Um, anyways, w- when I engage with, with this
1: meal thing, I guess what I'm hearing from Emil, which I obviously hear fairly frequently, is that I'm speaking strategically... Mm. And so that would be an example of relations among things mm-hmm. and and so when you speak strategically, you refer to positions as being fixed in such a way that they may or may not be mm-hmm. fixed, but it definitely sounds like you're mm. you're doing that and um I think that uh that's totally valid that's a very valid criticism
0: mm-hmm. um, the I mean I think it's a difference between functional language and and descriptive language. So when you're talking strategically, you, you do have to treat things as things. Right. You can't just dissolve into the relational activity continuum. <laughs> right.
1: No, sure. Well, and, and also, I'm mostly disinterested in, in, the, in the philosophical project that you're referring to, mm-hmm. because it, it requires using these terms that, that um, uh, statically... That I that I tend to prefer to use um, more subjectively.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, uh, I like I like the Wittgenstein quote that you use, but but you know I really have no idea what Wittgenstein's project is, even though you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways it was poking holes. I mean, even even this kind of conversation or the kind of conversation that Emil wants to have with people is something that he commented on when he was saying. our language developed for practical purposes. It was to talk about things, everyday sort of things, and just to to plan basic activities. But when we try to use it to talk about these vast concepts, it it just ends up falling short.
1: Yeah, of course, I I like to put a lot of this type of critique at the doorstep of English, rather than than language in general. Sure. But... um, uh, but you know, it's the only language or I know. German. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, and I'm even I'm two generations removed from from fluent um, speakers of, of a Dawa language, which really is the Anishinaabe language group, um, with very little difference from what the uh, Chippewa um, talk uh, the the language they use. And so, so while I've I have um, my the equivalent of my great-grandfather that didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had exposure as a young child to, to him. You know, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I don't... And When we talk to people who speak a lot of languages, which a lot of people in Europe are like this, you know, we imagine that um, that how they think is different based on which language they're thinking in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I definitely have had the experience of watching a person speak in their first language rather than in English and, and seeing how differently animated they are and right. seeing, seeing that difference being like a central sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I guess all this is sort of a long-winded way to say I utterly reject this language. I utterly reject the language that you use to describe <laughs> sort of... Um, uh, I, not your project, but how he sort of describes you in here. Mm-hmm. And But I don't have the tools to, to, to rage at at this top-down Eurocentric uh, uh, assigning of mm-hmm. characteristics. And, and so um, uh, I, I only, like, the one thing I will say is, is I have enough power at this t- point in my life after having, you know, essentially lived here for 20 years in this type of language to say what it is that I just said. Whereas I know very well that most people who are a little earlier in this, in this discourse... Don't have the power to say, sort of say like you've assigned me a, a set of characteristics that I, I I don't know how to fight you on this and mm-hmm. I don't know how to how to not be assigned by you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Anyway, so I mean I definitely appreciate what Amigo uh, is mean, saying here and I, I really like you know the fact that they're sort of going on about Land Strikers Nietzsche and, and all the rest. I think that that's somewhat interesting, but I'm not sure it's fair to the human being named Wolfie Landstriker striker who probably agrees with Emil or at the very least doesn't agree to the assi- assigning that they've received here, mm-hmm. even, even though I would totally do it myself in writing. So, <laughs> so, so it's, that, it's that, in other words, I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, that complicated relationship between yourself and your motivations, the foundations based in sort of a classics definition of what's being talked about here and how to relate those to something that's maybe more more useful. Mm-hmm. To, me, to me, this is a uh, a conversation that will continue for the rest of my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I'd like to get into it more in a future episode. Perhaps we should move on. Sure. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to bring up was John Zerzan's new book has just been published. Announced. It is called Why Hope. It's being published through Feral House, and there was a short review of it posted from, or posted to A-News by Ian Smith, who is the author of the blog Uncivilized Animals, which about one entry a month uh, on a variety of topics from an anarcho-primitivist perspective. There was an interesting response at one point on that blog to the accusation that anarcho-primitivism is ableist. And um, so why hope? To whom do you think that might be directed?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do feel a little um, implicated in, in uh, in the title of that book. And and I really look forward to reading the introduction to it for to exactly see where he's going here. Um, on his radio show over the past few months, he's been sort of obliquely referring to the fact that this is his uh, smackdown of uh, the dirty nihilists mm-hmm. um, and and you know the the, the the people who who aren't on board to, for his program. Um, I, I do, do want to say just to, to in, before we dig much further into the content of a book that neither of us have read, that um, that Ian participated in this uh, Green Anarchist round round table. Oh, that we had. Yeah, yeah, This was at the Seattle Book Fair in 2014, and um, the conversation was recorded um, in an uh, issue two, I believe, of Black Seed. Yeah, and uh, and I'll say that I my impression of Ian, who I uh, I had hadn't really had an impression of prior to that was, um, the Ian's project appears to be, to be the reasonable anarcho-primitivist, mm-hmm. um, uh, but very much sort of a, you know, yet another interpreter of other people's work. Um, uh, I, uh, and, you know, they just seem like an educated, a uh, college educated white guy who I didn't exactly... Um, like, you know, I didn't want to go out to to have coffee with him but he didn't seem like he had a much malice
0: No, I don't think so um, Yeah, and just to clarify I have read a, a few essays from this collection but I have not read it in its entirety so I didn't so much bring this up to talk about the book in particular but rather to talk about the review and the way that the book is being framed so Ian's review opens with this line or these few lines: quote, "John Zerzan could be described as defiantly hopeful in a time when a seed of nihilism has been germinating in the anarchist milieu. Zerzan has published a new book in which almost every essay has an element of hope, whereas pessimism and despair are currently fashionable postures. Zerzan's more optimistic perspective is both refreshing and vitally important." End quote. There's a lot of rhetorical tricks going on yeah. there in just a few sentences. Um, the, so, the, first, the, the sort of uh, characterization of a, a very broad tendency of thought as having almost a disease-like or pestilential quality, and also the sort of bald claim. I, I don't. I find it difficult to believe that anyone knows because I don't think there ever has been or would be any kind of empirical study of which tendencies in anarchism are popular. And I think what tends to happen with this milieu that to begin with is a fairly small number of people, a much smaller segment of that milieu are the sort of active talkers. And I just find a lot of this sort of, because I said it, it's true going on, or because I heard so-and-so say it, it must be true. And then, you know, a lot of this inference just ends up being internet chatter. So th- this idea that somehow pessimism is surging, which I, I've i se- obviously Ian's saying it here, I've seen other people say it.
1: John says it all the time. John the says it all
0: the time. And it's where... I, I, I just don't see the, the point of making these sorts of claims that I don't think anyone can demonstrate are true, and I don't know what the agenda is there. Or maybe I should say not that I don't know what the, the agenda is, but rather that I suspect there's this sort of agenda of wanting to have a bad guy and then therefore to make oneself the good guy and just create this sort of antagonism that maybe is not as pronounced as it seems.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I, at this point, one of the reasons why I feel like I speak strategically fairly frequently is so that I can, te- can contextualize the fact that a lot of the people around us um, have agendas in other words, I speak strategically so I, so I can uh, explain to a person, you know, if someone has a, uh, an ideological position or, or has a certain belief system that they want to use, they're going to say, they're going to express it in this way so that you are sympathetic to that position. In other words, like, how do you sort of, it, from a meta perspective, explain to a person that you're talking to that the people around them not just have agendas but are actively trying to push for their agenda rather than for something else. Mm-hmm. So so in this case this whole conversation about like you know this there is there's is this negative movement to foot and it's 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 mm-hmm. and, and honestly anarchists of all stripes use use terminology about how um, it's increasing <laughs> or like like, like but know, also just I've, the, I've, I've done the math and the curve is, is heading up.
0: yeah, but also the, the kind of pestilential description is so gross. you know I mean this is the way that all, all kinds of nastiness gets talked about in the world, it's everywhere and it's gross and it's growing and it's spreading.
1: <laughs> yeah well, for sure it's I mean, when, when you're talking about nihilistic concepts, you know uh, uh, that good things are not in the future. Like it's pretty easy to tar it with the brush of being cancer like. Yeah. But uh uh but I I wanna say I guess at the at the heart of this is a strange problem that this position has, which is that it is a position that has a beginning, middle and end and and it has action items that it's sort of assigning us as individuals and um and that whole modality sort of is very—they they, they speak of it very evasively because AP, for whatever other criticisms I might make of it, doesn't have a clear action plan. That that humans are like—if we have all the hope in the world, you know, after after reading John's newest book, that that we now march out to battle, and and at the end of this, you know, all, we we see the dividends that hope pays us because we accomplish four more steps in the direction of a of a rewilding, world there there isn't no, there is no, there's no there's a big question mark in there that that is not spoken of in in clear language and so when it's referring to, to nihilism in the, in the way that it is what it's basically saying is that the emphasis on the futility of the work of man is a big downer
0: mm-hmm.
1: instead The work of man should be seen as having a beginning middle and end and we who are at the end of the great works of man should hit a reset button Mm -hmm. or we should speak nostalgically for experiences that we've never had and um, and and so for me this is this is a a, a really just a matter of emphasis and, and like what where do you choose to sort of put the beat and you know speaking for myself I choose to be to put the beat on the futility of man to 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 do the things that they think that they're doing and instead to emphasize the moments that I, I'm actually living and the moments that I'm living with the, the people around me mm-hmm. rather than thinking that um, every time I walk onto the streets that that the halls of power you know get getting an, getting an alert because because fucking justice is coming. Um,
0: anyways yeah i i just um i'm i the other part i wanted to bring up is that i find that there's this obnoxious conflation between outlook and activity or between analysis and emotional resonance hmm. i mean having a pessimistic outlook i think you you put pretty well i, I mean i would call it a kind of anti-humanistic position hmm. an idea that uh you know, maybe humanity is not the all-conquering force that can direct, you know, seize the reins of history and change it. it that doesn't... And and so it's more about doubt, maybe, or denying the savior perspective. Um, it's, it's not so much saying we cannot have the world that we want and that's the end of the story, go home and cry, but rather what does it mean to be an anarchist if we may never see the world that we want in our life? If we don't think that... Uh, we are the other half of the dialectic right? and so instead of dreaming about what could be instead engaging with the world that it, as it is right now which to me is not this miserable, unhappy like I'm going to s- sit in my room all day with a bottle of whiskey and you're never going to see me again position and, it, and I don't think being a pessimist means being miserable and unhappy and passive
1: so uh, I think the most interesting work that John has done is best encapsulated in the book that Kevin put together which is basically a set of his essays about origins. hmm Though, the only problem I really have with with the concept of examining origins and sort of drawing a line between here, between there and here is I have an issue with the belief that what John is writing about and the origins that John has discovered it are true. hmm I'm basically just going to this is perspective... Anti-realist. Yeah. Um, but I think that the thought exercise, like a good science fiction story, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of saying that feminism began in the Stone Age and, and you know, tracing... Or having some sort of conversation that traces sculpture of the era to, you know, to, to billboards of today. There's something there that, that, that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, but mostly it's interesting from the perspective of... Like, I actually... So it's interesting but I would say that it for me it feels like a position that is very powerless because anytime you talk about sort of genealogy even if it's a historical type of genealogy you're basically talking about the fact that like it's bigger than me I can't change it and uh, and especially in the way that John does it and it's true
0: mm-hmm. um, uh, so you think there's a kind of trap of history there or
1: well for sure there's a there's a tra- a trap of history or of anthropology, in this case,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but but this this idea that um, so so I think that the that the intellectual work of, of origins, which is sort of at the heart of John's project, I think it's totally fascinating, and I and I think that that the fact that John has spent thirty years following through in all these different um, arenas is really interesting, and I and, and to, to just take it one step further. The idea that John provoke, has provoked anarchists to, to reasonably have to talk about whether or not speaking is, is possible to, to get around, mm-hmm. that's a fantastic thought, sure. thought exercise. Um, mostly because, you know, the idea of spending a day or two with a friend and not speaking, that's the sort of thing that I would like to see people do more types of experimentations around.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but that's, that isn't to say that I believe that there was an era prior to speech where we were using something like telepathy... communicate with one another which is sort of like one of the embarrassing ways in which other people really tar john and perhaps he's left that 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 area open for himself so i guess that that idea of like how do we fully commit to it to a thought exercise but for a limited duration of time Mm -hmm. so in the 80s it perhaps was appropriate to like play through the origin thing as far as they could in the context of future primitive but perhaps by 2015 you know, we've sort of seen how far that gets us and the best case scenario looks like white dudes wearing raccoon skins in downtown Portland
0: mm-hmm. yeah sure and yeah, the origins essays I love because really what it's, it's a lot of questioning and probing and saying it might be the case that a lot of our situation has not to do with just material things and material infrastructure but also just at a deep level the way that we think And that a different, a profoundly different way of thinking may be possible. I think that's awesome. Um, What I don't like that I've been seeing for the past couple years and what seems to be the thrust of this book is this idea that your sort of broad philosophical outlook about what humanity is capable of is a problem and you need to believe the right thing. It's not... And there's, again, that conflation between if you believe something, you must be behaving a certain way rather than saying, oh, I see you're working on on projects that I respect and that are roughly in accordance with my project. That's cool. Believe what you want, whatever gets you to do that. No, instead it's, there's this sort of mandatory belief. You have to truly feel it. And I find that just obnoxious.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, I'm just going to give one more shout-out to, to especially the Origins book that collects all these essays together as almost the perfect accompaniment to Freddie Perlman's Against History Against Leviathan because it's because w- while I, I tend to see the world in, in stories and in sets of stories um, and origin sort of takes itself up much more seriously as like an anthropological documentation of, of what humans were like during X period the, the story component of Against History does, does beg for some so, sort of grounding and and especially some sort of connection to the modern era, because Against History seems so so fantastical, mm-hmm. and um, and so this so I feel like Origins is a, is a good left hand to the right hand of Against History just just because it it, it brings it to a yeah just it, it brings it to this era
0: yeah I would absolutely recommend both of those books both hugely influential on me
1: well That's... I yeah I don't have a lot to say about about I mean, yeah I get i guess I would say the only thing I'll say about the, the review itself is um it's not a review it's, <laughs> it's just not it's it's basically someone in the a p canon giving a shout out to like their homies um and uh and because Ian's style is so quote unquote reasonable um you know one isn't sort of one doesn't doesn't say like why is why is there nothing critical or actually that appears to engage in the material here instead you know just read this as what I feel like it is which is just you know someone in the in the crew giving a shout out to their homie uh, and <laughs> full stop yeah do you have anything to say? no
0: I mean I, I think it's I think it's true um, I wouldn't go so far as to say I've that Ian doesn't say anything critical about John that I've seen or no I'm sorry that he doesn't say anything critical full stop, but nothing I've seen on his blog is critical. It's mostly just, uh, John said this great thing, and now I'm, I'm gonna develop it in this other way, or I'm gonna add this other facet to it, which, you know, it's fine. It, um, it's just very partisan.
1: I mean, here's here's the, um, the rip-roaring end of this, uh, review. Civilization aims to project an image of invulnerability. Those who oppose civilization should not be so credulous as to believe it.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, Fair like, enough, I guess.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay, and so now, <laughs> now we're going to talk about the Anthropocene.
0: Okay. Do you want? I mean, do you want to, or like, way in? Oh, no. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. 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 So this might be a long episode, I guess. Um, well, actually, I think that it
1: might make more sense for us to s- consider that the theme, like we've had plenty to say without uh, approaching the theme, and so the theme might be anti-civilization rather than indigeneity, because oh, okay. we're not—we're just not going to get there we fucking brought to the blood?
0: sort of a jazz podcast which very improvised yeah. <laughs> sometimes you end up with a different tune than you started with. <laughs> I, I didn't write a
1: script before i began talking i am improvising anyways. onwards
0: sure so yeah i wanted to talk about it there was an interesting study that came out of um the journal nature and unfortunately it's one of those journals that makes you pay for actual primary sources but there was some coverage on the story and it was by these uh two folks, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin, who are geologists. So they wanted to talk about what might be a a reasonable geologically defined beginning for the Anthropocene. So for those who don't know, it's a way of... So epics are are sort of the smaller units on the geological timescale that separate one age from another. And the idea is that they have to be significantly different from one another geologically, climatologically. Is that
1: epic or epoch? Epic. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, And so some people have taken to calling our time the Anthropocene as a way of saying that human activity has changed, is changing the world so dramatically as to constitute a geologically significant change. So, of course, we think of things like mass extinction, climate change, uh, creation of synthetic chemicals that then escape forever into the world, and become part of the Earth's chemistry, deforestation, agriculture, uh, h- human-created species. It's a way of saying these things are not just fleeting surface changes, but instead are lasting, intense ones that that warrant a sort of sea change to the world. Um, and I want to take this opportunity to mention that the East Bay Anarchist Book Fair organizers, of which I am not one, have decided that the Anthropocene will be the theme of... Um, the conversations there. So, and the
1: East Bay anarchist book and discussion event ah. will happen on <laughs> December 5th. I'm also not one of the organizers, but, uh, uh, but, but it, it's happening in early December first weekend and, and the, al- already there are workshops coming in.
0: Right. And that's going to be at the humanist hall, at
1: the humanist hall, which is where it's been every year.
0: Uh-huh. Um, and it's interesting to see the kind of response that, calling this age the Anthropocene has provoked in some radicals. I'm thinking of the Invisible Committee in To Our Friends where they they had this kind of funny tangent where they just talked about how it, it was just another case of human narcissism to define the age in our terms, even if it's a way of saying that we actually have done a lot of damage to the world. And I don't really see it so much as narcissistic as just a sort of sober assessment of the situation. And I don't necessarily see it even as humanistic. I like to compare the human species in this kind of humiliating way to cyanobacteria. So the the bacteria that came about 2.3 billion years ago, um, if we are to be scientific realists for a moment, and they were the first organisms to photosynthesize, and so as a result, they're process of feeding themselves involved them shitting oxygen into the world which was at that time extremely scarce and in doing this they poisoned most of the life on earth which which to which or for whom oxygen was toxic and may have even changed the climate enough to bring about the first ice age and so the cyanobacteria got a whole era not just an epic (laughs) <laughs> named after them it seems like human beings should at least get an epic and um
1: that's uh, geology humor for those of you uh, <laughs> who mistook
0: mistook,
1: mistook his uh, dry tone for uh <laughs> so as to work on his com- comedic timing but that that kills at the uh, geologist conference
0: so uh, so these two geologists were We're doing a kind of assessment of the different... Walked into a bar? (laughs) Apologies. They were looking at a a set of different dates that had been proposed as the beginning of the Anthropocene. And I just want to run them down because I think it's interesting to to kind of look at a a survey of human activity and how much we've changed things. And so out of these nine, they chose one as being the appropriate date. But first, I'm just going to name them. So going uh, chronologically in reverse, 1950... Where the the chemical industry took off uh-huh. and started introducing all these things that forever changed the biochemistry of the planet. DuPont. Yeah, right. Yeah. Nineteen forty five, beginning of atomic weaponry, yeah. capacity to annihilate a great deal of life. That's easily. a great one. <laughs> yeah. Seventeen fifty, industrial rev, full effect. In England. Yeah. Really taken off. Um, you know, obviously the beginning of of uh, major beginning of climate change um 1492 the collision of worlds new world old world dramatic invasion uh, or a uh, big moment for invasive species uh actually a huge it's a big moment <laughs> big moment. Big moment. <laughs> really they were species. at the at top of their game then <laughs> mollusks
1: give a shout out yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh interestingly also a massive carbon sink just from uh european invaders killing so many indigenous that uh the the sort of uh tending the wild that was happening there got annihilated and so you actually had a huge takeoff of forests and pulling a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere uh 45 or sorry a thousand bc high level of uh, anthropogenic soil change so loss of topsoil all sorts of things like that 4500 bc rice farming 6000 bc uh high levels of farming in europe and asia Nine thousand BC origin of agriculture, which I think the a certain anti-civ analysis would say yes, this is that's uh, the one. that's the one. And then um, ten thousand to fifty thousand years ago, megafauna extinction, which I know is a, a controversial topic, especially among those with an anti-civ orientation who would like to not or would like to say that uh, pre-contact. Natives were not uh, destroying their environment, but uh, these people took it as true. So the authors dismiss all but two as being either too local or occurring over too long a time period to to be a clear-cut change. They settle actually on 1610 as the moment because it captures both the collision of worlds and the uh, Industrial Revolution starting. Funny thing to me was their second choice was 1950. Or, I'm sorry, 1945 with the nukes, but they said, uh, because we haven't nuked ourselves into smithereens yet, it's yeah. the, it hasn't happened. So. It's too local. <laughs> it's too local. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just, I think, I bring this up just to, to put a certain light on you know, what what is the nature of the human species. Uh, we were talking before about sort of uh, a more anti-humanist, pessimistic look at you know, what are we capable of for maybe the good. But in this case, you know, what are we capable of in just this kind of organismal way? Quite a fucking lot. I don't know that there's been a, an organism like the human since the cyanobacteria.
1: <laughs> you know, anytime we we, we get into fat, fads, which right now... The uh, it's a total fad, the yeah. The term anthropocene yeah. is, a, is fully qualifies as a faddish term. We're, we're talking about sort of what are aspects of the fad that are valuable for us to think about in terms of reversal perspective and in terms of actually what you're talking about largely which is sort of the devil in the details. Right. And then on the other hand what is this fad going to look like as a sort of sociological object. Mm -hmm. Because of course how I'm experiencing the Anthropocene right now is entirely as the sociological aspect. It's like the new way to talk about the uh, the ecology movement to the seventies, or recycling in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, or green capitalism in the nineties, mm-hmm. and and um, and so I think that what I guess the left or radical politics has ha- had a pretty clear aversion to anything that looks like empirical evidence for for some time. Yeah, and um, and so this is a r- sort of reorienting back towards uh, towards that matter but i feel like at the end of this conversation is something a little irrelevant which is sort of like but well, what about people mm-hmm. um or an assigning of blame so for instance 1610 is a, is a very strange number in that in that in that context yeah it's
0: sort of <laughs> like indigenous genocide was in full effect and industrial revolution was in full effect so
1: and yeah and it's and it's also you know yet another way for us to talk about europe mm-hmm. um uh I guess at this point uh, yeah I don't know I
0: well, so I understand the the radical aversion to talking about the anthropocene because there's
1: the aversion to talking
0: about it. Yeah, the aversion uh-huh. to talking about it because it ends up as this kind of pointless mea culpa of oh, the human such a destroyer and you end up just really recapitulating that anthropocentrism by saying like okay, we we are the hegemonic organism in a certain way, although I would say, I mean, clearly bacteria are and probably always will be really the the hegemonic organisms. But uh, it it becomes hard to know what to do with it besides just sort of make this observation in this way that I I wouldn't say is neutral, but it's not very actionable. And so I will be interested to see what kinds of conversations come out of EBAB because I think you can really take it in one of two ways you can say like we we are the masters of the world and so now we have to do something good with it or you can say take the perspective that i have more which is just you know we're this an organism not terribly different from any other organism because it just sort of does what it does and it eats and it shits and it fucks and it spreads and that's just what's happening right now
1: well this actually gets at the heart of an earlier topic from this particular episode is the Anthropocene, or let me put it a different way. If you have hope, the, hope, right. the hopeless right. argument is that once you recognize that you broke it.
0: Right, it's the first one. Yeah.
1: You recognize that you now have to fix it. Right. And that you're the only agent that is capable of fixing
0: it. Right. Because
1: you're the one who broke it. And so in that way, the, the conversation around the Anthropocene is a conversation about human agency and about the fact that by recognizing that we have had an impact in the world, we can now have a sober conversation about what our impact in the future should be because we now know that we have one.
0: Right. And that was my point of bringing up, the. besides just being a fucking nerd who can't help himself, that was my point of bringing up the cyanobacteria is just to say the human species is not unique. I mean, these things come along sometimes, or, or it is it is unique in the way that everything is unique is what I should say. But it these events come along that life... It might just be in the nature of life that it periodically resets itself in a certain way.
1: I guess where I'm going is to say that the fact that I understand that I and the seven billion friends that I happen to have walking on the planet, <laughs> the fact that we have an impact on the planet, um, or that we have impacted the planet, doesn't mean that I believe that I myself am impacting the planet. Like, at it's, it's, it's some point, the... Um, uh, I'm not special.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like seven billion is actually quite a lot, and <laughs> I might shout very, very loudly and yet not be heard. Mm-hmm. And uh,
0: job so... of the philosopher is to scream, <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> and perhaps my job is to point and laugh.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, the, I, I in, other, in other words, I, I guess. I, I feel the, the the use of the Anthropocene will be to try to mobilize people towards particular types of actions actions that I myself ultimately see as being futile mm-hmm. so radical friends of ours from New York uh, have have uh, interjected in this big um, climate change rally in New York City climate change is sort of the the new recycling. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and so uh, i think it's called 650.org or something 350 350.org which is
0: like parts per million of carbon i think right carbon dioxide i think
1: it's like it's like the difference between the plastic bin and the and the tin bin <laughs> and the uh, anyways the uh, so so some friends of ours intervened in this in this rally by by mass producing a publication that at the at the center of this publication was an assertion of the anthropocene Anthropocenic principle, which is that humans influence their environment, and and I I think that that they that this document is a hopeless document that basically says, you know, and now take action. Mm -hmm. And and I think that um, as someone who is a proponent of living rather than observing myself living, Mm -hmm. I am not a hopist because hope for me in general is a way where you observe yourself mm-hmm. doing things in the world or taking positions mm-hmm. in the world rather than doing those positions.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this gets back to what I was saying about the the conflation between orientation and perspective and activity. There, what if, uh, since we're sort of pejoratively characterizing this, as the hopeless perspective says, if you don't hope, you won't actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas my perspective is, clearly I'm doing things and my orientation goes along with it, it's inseparable from it, but it, you're trying to create this sort of cause and effect, like, if first you believe, then you act, and I'm saying that those things are inseparable. And why would you think that a, a, a certain activity necessarily follows from a certain perspective?
1: Yeah, and the only thing I'm trying to add to, to, to that is basically the spectacular analysis that says right. that in general, what a is um, is arguing for is a representation of their action, sure. rather than their a- the action itself. Sure. In other words, very few of our positions end with saying, "Live quietly, perhaps in your backyard, perhaps growing a garden, and 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 st- and stop be- stop reaching for the stars." Mm-hmm. But that's actually, you know, at the end of the day, if you want humans to not, you know. Uh, Put put things in the geological record that look like nuclear bombs, or or big forest fires. That that's what that looks like. That looks like. You mean,
0: living quietly is actually live
1: quietly, stop breeding, and. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a much harder uh, a position to take if you're trying to convince a big mass of people to to get on the same page. Mm-hmm. And. In other words, I guess what's
0: well, actually kind of a dropout perspective is what you're talking about. For sure, for yeah. sure.
1: But but if you're if you're talking about the Anthropocene, I, I mean, on, at some point you should be talking about dropout.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, or or mass die off. <laughs> that's like the ultimate <laughs> yeah. dropout culture. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the that is the sort of funny like to to talk about uh, collapse from a different perspective is is to sort of say this idea that. That what collapse really is is the exhaustion of, of humanity into a mass dropout
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that ends with not having enough food. <laughs> <But yeah. laughs> sure, yeah.
1: there are some messy yeah. details in there for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I, I think just to maybe put a cap on this, the to me the absolute insanity that take, comes from taking the anthropocene perspective as far as you can are the kinds of Wackadoodle statements that were coming out of DGR at a certain point when they were really in their own. And Lear Keith, more than once, uh, she says it in the film. I've seen her say it in person. I'm sure she says it elsewhere. Says that if we don't stop civilization, we're going to literally annihilate all life. That even all that climate change is going to kill all of the bacteria on the planet. I just don't know where she's getting this from. I I don't know if she had a bad dream that this happened or what. She makes no citation of any kind. And I just find it astronomically stupid to think that somehow the the human organism is going to be the end of all life. And it it really, that does capture what the Invisible Committee is talking about as this insane narcissism that comes from it. I mean, if you want to talk about, like, the hopeless perspective of, of sure. what the human is capable of.
1: Well, um, it is true that if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. Ah. And I think that from that perspective, Lear <laughs> Lier- Keith is right on. <laughs> uh, I think there's a J.G. Ballard or the, there's, there's this great science fiction story that basically at the heart of it is this idea that a human constructed universe only exists in your field of vision. Mm-hmm. so so the the story involves this the protagonist racing from window to window in their home and watching reality reconfigure itself to his perceived uh idea of of what it should be and hmm. and I do feel like there's absolutely like as much as I might not be a big fan of big science capital s that that this the the total abandonment of empirical evidence ultimately ends up to to be that that my my perception is the is is perception Mm -hmm. and uh i mean i i guess yeah this is one of the reasons why i've never been a big like i've never jumped on trains about collapse or, or or all the rest because because the the words are really really big collapse is a really big word that evokes you know like Planes flying into the White House, and, and you know, the rock, you know, saving some princesses, hungry hordes, <laughs> exactly. Wondrous. But, um, but it really is a matter of, of like, I, as, a, as someone who lives in Western culture, are going to be greatly impacted if things go awry. the,
0: the most impacted, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah.
1: But, but, but that's still just a matter of perspective, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's one of the ultimate, uh, lessons of the podcast at least at this point is that we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about uh, perspectivism
0: yeah yeah and um,
1: and if you haven't noticed uh, yet again natives have lost uh, on this episode
0: <laughs> uh, we, we've
1: abandoned the uh, in original theme which was indigeneity and it appears that the theme is how something like hope or civilization which uh, are not the same thing as indigeneity
0: nope so, nope So what I did was take up all of our time with science, (laughs) with Western philosophy, with uh, with white authors. (laughs) It's
1: it's it's great that that you are prefiguring the blame that's going to happen after this. this,
0: uh... Well, I I mean I feel like obviously I'm responsible for this. I mean I'm the white one. Yeah, (laughs) controlling the podcast here. (laughs) Well, awesome. I mean,
1: honestly, these are rich topics, and and, you know we will be digging into them all again are we
0: going to do indigeneity next week
1: yeah i think i I oh no actually we shouldn't because the crime thing okay
0: so so next week will probably be something like the people
1: yeah something like that
0: and then the following week indigeneity yeah that's great that sounds good but the um
1: so thank you for joining us for this episode of the brilliant podcast this was episode number eight um i guess we're going to call it hope and then um uh and yeah, so next week we'll be talking about the Crime Think event that's happening here in the Bay Area starting tomorrow. And then we're having a second event on Tuesday at our little study group. Um, I'm Aragorn. And I am Bellamy. Thanks a lot
0: for listening. Talk to you later. <laughs>